0: Hello all, my name is Tom Condon and with me is Rick Sexton. This is part two of our post-surgical complications series on oliguria and constipation. Originally this was a one-part recording, we're now continuing on with part two which covers constipation. As per usual, the usual disclaimer of this is student-derived content and is not representative of the medical school or any medical practitioners advice applies please take what we say with a grain of salt.
1: So Tom now we'd like to talk about uh, constipation in the post-surgical patient.
0: All right so this is a very common topic and some constipation or people not opening their bowels after surgery is to be expected after certain surgeries but it really depends on how long this occurs for and we know there's a lot of factors which might influence the bowel motions after surgery. What are they
1: Rick? So common things that might affect bowel motility in the post-surgical patient are the use of opioid medications, so opioids slow transit in the bowels, and a lot of surgical patients will be on opioids for pain, so that can contribute to constipation. Also, just patients are immobile, uh, may not be moving around a lot, so that slows things down. The physical handling of the bowel itself during the operation often causes an ileus. Patients may be fasting prior to surgery or have undergone bowel preparation, etc., Maybe dehydrated as well, and other things like electrolyte imbalances and other medications that they're on might influence constipation. So, how long is too long, Tom? What would be what would concern you in a constipated post surgical patient?
0: It's a bit of a how long is a piece of string question because it really depends on the patient's symptomatology and the individual context. But if you were to consider what surgery they've had, so if they've had their stomach or small intestine operated on, you can have zero to 48 hours of no bowel motions and this actually increases if you operate on the colon to up to three days.
1: And consider that the duration of ileus after surgery is going to be longer in an open procedure where the bowel's been handled more than it would be in a minimally invasive laparoscopic procedure where the bowel hasn't been handled very much.
0: Yeah and any sort of blockage is not necessarily absolute so people have partial obstructions and they may be partially constipated so we're really interested in the patient and are they passing wind are they sick are they in pain and what the physical examination history leads you to think so i guess that moves us along to you know what are some important differentials to keep in mind so the common differentials we want to look at are ileus, bowel obstruction and constipation
1: in my rather dated 8th edition of the Oxford Handbook of Clinical Medicine, they mention hospital toilets and they talk about distant, squalid and fearsome toilets as another important reason that patients may be constipated. Just keep in mind that going to the toilet in hospital may just be really unpleasant and people don't want to go
0: so with that in mind how would you approach someone that hasn't opened their bowels after surgery all
1: right well just to re-emphasize things let's talk about a's b's and c's do they have a patent airway are they talking are they breathing really fast do they look horribly unwell um do they have pulses etc do i need to call a met straight away just want to re-emphasize that for the purposes of your osces and exams as well Keep that in mind. All right, so I wanna, I wanna see, do they look sick? Do they look unstable? What's their vital signs? How severe is their pain? And how much opioids are, are they getting? Is the patient passing flatus? So that would be the difference between constipation and obstipation. And just generally overview the patient's general health. So obstipation is where patients passing neither bowel movements or flatus, more likely to be ileus or a, or a more severe bowel obstruction.
0: Right, so if they're passing wind, that's more likely to be constipation. So, what sort of things are we looking for in a history if this was to come up and ask him?
1: So, if the patient is experiencing pain, you'd use whatever approach it is that you have to um, taking a pain history. So, some people like the, the Socrates or OPQRST or Lost Radio sort of approach, all those mnemonics. Is the patient constipated or obstipated, which we just touched upon before? Have they vomited? Have they had previous abdominal surgery? Why would that be important, Tom?
0: So, we want to know if they've had previous abdominal surgery because this can cause a bowel obstruction through adhesions. And we can also consider if they have had any known hernias because this can also cause bowel obstruction
1: keep in mind that some hernias are more dangerous and more likely to cause bowel obstruction like a femoral hernia is more dangerous from a strangulation incarceration perspective than an inguinal hernia for instance has the patient had any recent changes in their bowel movements or any investigations that might have examined that like colonoscopies, abdominal imaging, etc.
0: And then on examination, we really want to review the observation chart for any recent changes. So we might want to see if they've become tachycardic, which might indicate dehydration. Are they hypertensive? Is there a new fever, which would not normally be a sign of constipation? Then we want to do a medication chart review. So we're looking for any recent changes to medications such as increase or commencement of opioids or even some anticholinergic type
1: drugs so what's an example of an anticholinergic tom and why might they be prescribed so the most
0: common cause we'll see on the wards will be someone who's on them for urinary frequency or incontinence and an example of this would be oxybutynin
1: sure in a post-surgical patient who's catheterized it's pretty unlikely that they'll be on anticholinergics Um, also just note that a lot of surgical patients they'll have a fluid balance chart which will give you clues as to how much they've lost how much they've had etc
0: so after we've looked at the observation chart and the medication chart it's time to put our hands on the patient do an abdominal exam looking for tenderness peritonism so these are things like percussing or rebound tenderness and then don't forget to do per rectal examination, looking for masses, faecal loading, or if there's an empty rectum, this is quite important. So if we were to consider our three differentials, ileus, bowel obstruction, and constipation, perhaps let's start with ileus. What would you expect to find on history?
1: So ileus, from a history perspective, it's going to be more common in a patient who's had significant abdominal surgery or you know, a big inflammatory process that's happened in the abdomen like a, you know, a ruptured appendix, you know, large peritonitis and they might have the obstipation that we're talking about and potentially bilious vomiting and then on examination the abdomen may be grossly distended and there'll be absent or reduced bowel sounds.
0: Okay, so to contrast, what do we find on bowel obstruction history and examination?
1: So in bowel obstruction, the patient's more likely to have colicky abdominal pains, So pain that's coming and going. They're likely to have nausea with some bilious vomiting and obstipation and potential reason for bowel obstruction, such as prior surgery with adhesions, hernias or a malignancy. On examination, you're more likely to find sort of a tympanic abdominal distension. So like a stretched abdomen with high-pitched tinkling bowel sounds.
0: Right, so ileus and... Bowel obstruction can seem similar from a history point of view, but they've got different exam findings, don't they?
1: Yeah. Keep in mind that if someone is sick enough for long enough with a bowel obstruction, they can subsequently experience an ileus as well.
0: And then lastly, constipation. On history, we're looking at history. Abdominal pain is less than the other causes. There is some nausea but not generally vomiting and it can be precipitated by changes in hydration or new medications such as opioids. And then on examination, we're finding a distended abdomen but it's generally not tender like the other causes. And we'd need to do a PR to rule out faecal impaction syndrome.
1: So, Tom, there's this tidy mnemonic for people who like mnemonics for causes of bowel obstruction. It's HANG, H-A-N-G-I-V. So hernias, adhesions, neoplasms, gallstone ileus, intersusception, and volvulus. So, Tom, what's gallstone ileus?
0: So gallstone ileus is something that you might see in something like Crohn's. And it occurs when you have a little fistula occur between the gallbladder and the duodenum. A big gallstone is able to pass out through that fistula and then makes its way down to the smallest most narrow part of the small intestine which is generally just before the ileocecal valve and you get an obstruction.
1: What about intersusception and volvulus?
0: So intersusception is the telescoping of the bowel. Generally we talk about this in pediatric patients with the
1: quote-unquote sausage-shaped
0: mass in the abdomen.
1: So I think the more common and important finding for intersusception is just recurrent colicky pain. So every fifteen to twenty minutes or something, the child will experience you know severe pain. And if you find a sausage-shaped mass and the child has red currant jelly stool, then that's bad news. But I think more commonly it's just this colicky pain coming in fifteen to twenty-minute waves.
0: All these food descriptors for an acute abdomen: red currant poo and sausage-shaped mass.
1: It's a bit nasty. What's volvulus, Tom?
0: So, volvulus is a condition occurring generally in the elderly population, although it can occur in others. And it's generally when one piece of bowel twists around on itself and causes an obstruction. What's some examples of this, Rick? So,
1: it occurs in areas of the bowel that have a mesentery. So, sigmoid volvulus and secoid volvulus. volvulus are the ones that i know about and this is actually one of the scenarios where abdominal x-ray is useful what's the significant sign on an abdominal x-ray for sigmoid volvulus tom
0: it's another food thing coffee bean shaped bowel gas and the nice thing about the hang iv mnemonic is it's also generally what you do is you hang iv rehydrate them and we'll get into more management later on but so hang iv h is for
1: that's hernias
0: a is for
1: adhesions N is for neoplasms,
0: G is
1: for gallstone ileus, I is for intersusception,
0: and V is for
1: volvulus. Okay, so there's a number of secondary causes of constipation. Um, We won't go through all of them, but there's an extensive list on up to date. But these can be things like organic causes such as colorectal cancers, endocrine causes such as diabetes. So diabetic neuropathy can also affect the bowel and stomach for that matter. Uh, neurological injuries like spinal cord injuries, Parkinson's disease, myogenic problems, anorectal problems, things like fissures and strictures, drugs such as opiates, antihypertensives, tricyclics, and lastly, things like diet and lifestyle, so poor diets, with low fibre, dehydrations and a sedentary lifestyle.
0: Generally, the reason we're talking about this is not to cover them all one by one because the list is, frankly, quite long and boring but just to remind you that someone having constipation is not where your mind should switch off. It really should open up to why they're constipated. So once again, hypothyroidism things like that are important causes of secondary constipation that we don't want to miss rather than just feeling full of laxatives, temporarily solving the constipation issue and then having it crop up again shortly thereafter.
1: All right, so Tom, what's your management of a patient with constipation on the wards?
0: So here's a quick overview of the management for constipation. First things first, one of the things I learned during my third year was that constipation can look like quite an acute abdomen. So these people can actually be in quite a bit of pain and we want to limit how much opioids we give them, which is a little bit of a challenging idea, given that often these patients come in purely because they're in a lot of abdominal pain. Remembering also things like laxatives might help get the bowel moving and once they've got their bowels open they'll feel a hell of a lot more comfortable. We want to do appropriate fluid resuscitation in people who are constipated unless there's any obvious contraindication such as congestive heart failure. Probably want to keep these patients a little bit more wet, top them up so that they've got good urine output and they're quite hydrated just so that the bowels are not too dry. We want to think about replenishing important electrolytes such as potassium and magnesium because having low potassium and low magnesium can both lead to an ileus type syndrome. People with constipation should have bowel rest, so this is clear fluids. Obviously this is only in severe cases because also we know that eating does stimulate the gut, but if they are writhing around needing a lot of pain medications, then we probably want to keep the amount of material in their gut to a minimum. If people are vomiting, we want to put down a nasogastric tube this is uncommon if it's due to constipation but more common if it's due to something like ileus or bowel obstruction and then lastly there's real value to doing serial abdominal exams so this means going to the wards seeing the patient checking on them and then coming back an hour later and seeing if their abdominal exam has changed anyway so these are things like abdominal tenderness percussion rebound tenderness are they going the right way or is it getting worse and then lastly, one of the values of the nasogastric tube is we can put down something called gastrographin. So gastrographin is a contrast agent. It also has an osmotic effect, which acts like a laxative. And basically, we put it down and see how it passes over a 24-hour period. If it was constipation, we wouldn't expect any obstruction, so it should make its way down and will be therapeutic as well as diagnostic to rule out bowel obstruction. So Rick, moving on, we've talked a bit about radiology. One of the common favourite topics are the radiology signs of bowel obstruction. Take us through it.
1: Well, it depends on whether or not it's in the large bowel or the small bowel. So in either case, we're looking for multiple fluid levels, looking for distension of the bowel. So the rule of thumb that I heard in the small bowel, greater than 3 centimetres is abnormal. In the large bowel, greater than 6 centimetres is abnormal. And then in the cecum, greater than nine centimeters is abnormal. When you look at the x-ray, small intestinal obstruction is more likely to be central, whereas large bowel is more likely to be peripheral. So you can look for the presence of gas distally. So in the presence of an obstruction, um, the distal bowel will collapse and you won't necessarily be able to see gas. And then to again consider if it's large or small bowel, you can look for the presence of the, the plicae circularis or the valvuli conventes, whatever you want to call them, circular folds. So, in the small bowel, they go all the way around, whereas the hostra in the large bowel don't. So, if you can see it go all the way around and it can look like a stack of coins, that's more likely to be small bowel.
0: So, lastly, a talk about constipation wouldn't be complete without talking about laxatives. Talk us through them, Rick.
1: So, this is still a topic I find a little bit confusing and hard to remember. So, there's a few categories. Those are the bulk-forming laxatives, things like fiber gel, and that's the first line. Then osmotic laxatives, so the purpose of these is to draw more fluid into the bowel to try and accelerate peristalsis. Stimulant laxatives such as Senna, which accelerate the bowel movement, and then stool softeners and enemas, etc. And those examples of those are things like colloxal and docusate sodium.
0: Yeah, I think the reason laxatives are often hard to remember is that it's so prevalent that people talk about these in brand names, and it really becomes quite confusing when you sort of learn the drug names and all you hear about is your colloxal or you know fiber gel and these are often uh, brand names and it's hard to get a handle on it all so winding up the topic we should probably talk about how oliguria and constipation will come up during year three what do you think rick
1: yeah i think it's important so they could be both short answer questions or multiple choice questions and particularly bowel obstruction and the causes of it are a favorite topic so bowel obstruction is also an important topic if you're on a gen surge rotation so you'll often get asked what are the causes of bowel obstructions because they're a common surgical scenario other things are the the radiology signs of bowel obstruction like we touched upon before fluid management and this is you know the bread and butter of the surgical intern really and then electrolytes in particular hyperkalemia in the patient with oliguria and it's important to consider electrolytes in particular potassium be it high or low
0: yeah so i think that's a good little list so bowel obstruction radiology signs of bowel obstructions know how to do good fluid management and know about the different electrolyte disturbances so just to wind up we'll Do a little bit of back and forwards here. We'll do some true and false questions. These are all related to concerning small bowel obstruction. So true or false, the most common cause is a tumour.
1: I think that's false because I reckon the most common cause is adhesions.
0: Yes, and that's correct, Rick. The most common cause of large bowel obstruction, however, would be a tumour.
1: Such as colorectal cancer. All right, so Tom, is it true or false that concerning small bowel obstruction... It usually causes constant lower abdominal pain.
0: I reckon this one would be false, and that's because if we're to think about the structures of the foregut, midgut and hindgut, these are the embryological structures which dictate where the blood supply and the nerves, nervous system supply originate from. And if we think about the small bowel, we're typically talking about foregut and midgut, and that would not cause lower abdominal pain. So false.
1: I think also you could say that peristalsis is more likely to cause a colicky pain than a constant pain.
0: Concerning small bowel obstruction, it requires a nasogastric tube if the patient is vomiting.
1: I'm a bit 50-50 on this one. It requires, I don't know that you have to do it, it's probably good for patient comfort and to prevent aspiration, etc. And it's probably going to improve the outcome. I don't know if it's required. What do you think, Tom?
0: I think don't want to overthink true-false questions when you're in the exam context and whilst there may be cases where it's not 100% true. If we think about if someone's having a lot of vomiting, you know, we're leaning towards maybe putting a nasogastric tube in, even if it's not always, so I'd go true. Okay,
1: so concerning small bowel obstruction, Tom, obstruction due to adhesions requires prompt surgery.
0: So I think this one's false, and the reason I say that is that a lot of people with adhesions can be managed conservatively versus, say, something like a big, filthy tumour. So I'm going to go false on that one. Rick, so concerning small bowel obstruction, 50% of patients with adhesion obstruction settle with conservative treatment.
1: Well, considering you just told me that a lot of patients with adhesions settle with conservative management, I'm going to go that one's true.
0: Right. I sort of spoiled your answer there, didn't I? All right, so I think that's all we have time for today. I hope you found this useful. Thanks very much. Until next time, see you later.